This is Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. It's still a new podcast from WQXR. We interrogate the culture of our classical music scene, and we look at ways to make it beautiful for all of us. In this series, we're talking about representations of Blackness in opera. In this episode, we're talking about Giuseppe Verdi's Aida. 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 We were doing a production of Aida in North Carolina. Bass Kevin Maynard. I um, got a telephone call one night from Priscilla Baskerville. Priscilla Baskerville is a soprano who has sung the role of Aida. And she said to me, Kevin, did you not see it? They had all of those kids in chains when they did the capturing scene. She said, that is unacceptable. Aida is one of the most widely accepted operas in the world. You know, makes you think that the opera has always been not just adjacent to colonial conquest, but perhaps even quite a large part of it because it creates a curiosity. Pranati Dewalker is from our production team. But it also allows Western audiences to dissociate from the abuse of power because it just gets relegated to entertainment. This is Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. Many cultures, many voices, one people. Verdi's opera Aida has been entertaining audiences since 1871. The first performance in New York was in 1873. And since then, it's been staged more than 1,100 times in the city. That's like a week of performances every year for the past 150 years. Aida is so popular in New York, she has a statue. You can find her in Verdi Square on Broadway at 73rd Street. She's standing right next to Otello, and he hasn't smothered her yet. They've been there together since 1906. And who said she wouldn't last too long on Broadway? All hit songs aside, Otello and Aida represent two operas whose title characters are African. Both composed in the latter half of the 19th century, at the tail end of American slavery, and at the onset of what is known as the Scramble for Africa. That's during a time when equality was not the order of the day. Even Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, didn't believe in equality of the races. In September 1858, Abe Lincoln said this, I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say, in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And in as much as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. 
I say upon this occasion, I do not perceive that because the white man is to have the superior position, the Negro should be denied everything. I do not understand that because I do not want a Negro woman for a slave, I must necessarily want her for a wife. I will add to this that I have never seen, to my knowledge, a man, woman, or child who was in favor of producing a perfect equality, social and political, between Negroes and white men. Did you hear what Abe Lincoln said, old honest Abe? He said, I've never seen, to my knowledge, a man, woman, or child who was in favor of producing a perfect equality, social and political, between Negroes and white men. Apparently, Lincoln's thinking around equality and superior and inferior races is still rampant in our society, on and off the stage. Thousands of productions into Aida, and it's rare to see an African-American in the role of Rodimus, the Egyptian. Lemmy Pulliam is the first man of African descent to sing Rodimus at the Met Opera. I was honored to have the opportunity to go on to sing this role and to later find out that I was the first black tenor to have that opportunity on the Metropolitan stage. Um, it was both an honor and pretty shocking that, uh, you know, thinking of all the greats who have come before me, that none of them were given the opportunity to do this role. It, in a way, it saddens me. When I saw Radames, it was something about him that was so sweet. And I just couldn't resist him. Angela Brown as Aida. I'm talking about just being in the rarefied air of one another. We just clicked. It was something about me that was just different. Aida has been played by nine women of African descent at the Metropolitan Opera, Angela Brown being one of them. So what do you think? Does it strengthen the storyline, the drama, the believability of Aida to have the racial dynamic between a white Rodimus and a brown Aida? And is that drama worth the price we pay when we have to face and accept one another as equals in real life? I mean, do we have to see inequality on stage in addition to in real life? It plays out in the news headlines, plays out in the wealth gap, plays out in education, plays out in health care. We need her on the stage as well. I, it's the other weird Verdi opera. That's Peter Sellers, the opera and theater director. He wrote it for the opening of the Suez Canal. So it's like the opening of a department store. It's some giant, you know, event in the history of colonialism, empire, and capitalism. And so it has to put forward all these images that are standard, that we stand for freedom and we stand for blah, blah, blah. But of course, that music touches you. I mean, certain performers, of course, have made incredible, incredible, powerful portrayals of Aida. I mean, beautiful. But the piece itself is hard. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about America's Civil War and the impact it had on Verdi's opera and Egyptian life in the 1860s. 
This is Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. listening to Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. You know, three years after Abraham Lincoln gave that 1858 speech, the Civil War began and so did the cotton famine in England. And it caused a huge blockade on American exports, which impacted industries around the world. Slave labor produced two billion pounds of cotton every year. And Mississippi was the number one producer of that cotton. That's where my parents were born. That's where my grandfather's grandparents were freed Mississippi, back in 1863. So I imagine the majority of their free labor went to England that operated 2,650 factories and employed about 440,000 people. Most of those employees were women. All of them were wage earners. In the early 1860s, half of England's foreign trade involved cotton and 80% of that cotton came from the American South. So the disruption in England's economy caused by the American blockade had huge consequences, but it also presented irresistible opportunities in Egypt. Ismail Pasha, Egypt's Khedive, took full advantage of the cotton famine. As early as the 1820s, Egyptian leadership began looking into the cotton industry and they brought over machinery and experts from England and America, advising them on cotton agricultural practices. And by the 1860s, Egyptian farmers turned their backs on local food agriculture and turned all of their attention to cotton production with slave labor. And by 1861, cotton production increased 500% from the previous decades in Egypt. And England became its number one customer. So this huge increase in cotton production in Egypt was only made possible by the Khedive's use of slave labor from East Africa. Ismail Pasha, he was the Khedive, the man who commissioned Verdi's opera. He collected tax revenues, built roads, schools, did a lot of good, constructed museums, libraries. He opened the Suez Canal, which exponentially opened the trade route between East and West. And he also built a lavish opera house. This is important. During the American Civil War, during the blockade, Lancashire and the gins in England had to look for cotton from elsewhere. They turned to Egypt's long staple cotton, which to this day is the best cotton you can find. In my sheets right now. <laughs> I had no idea. Made in Egypt. You right. bet. It's still the best. This is Nemet Habachi, a WQXR host and native Egyptian. So you have all of these people floating around Cairo, which is a place you can make an awful lot of money. I mean, if you've got the imagination and you've got the will, you could do very well in Egypt. It was a gold rush country. If you came in with an idea, you could do well. So there was this nucleus of Europeans, Levantines, who were all making money hand over fist in Egypt, and they went to Aida. Most of them hailed from Europe. Ismail Pasha was hopeful that Aida would be the opening opera for Cairo's Opera House in 1869, 
And so his guest list included European dignitaries and royalty, Austrian Emperor Francis Joseph, the Empress Eugenie, the wife of Napoleon Bonaparte III. They showed up for the celebration. The motive of Ismail Pasha, Viceroy of Egypt, in making such tremendous efforts to attract Europeans to Cairo, is simply his desire to sell his vacant lots in that city, of which he owns nearly every vacant foot of ground, at as high rates as possible. For the same reason, he built the splendid Cairo Opera House. He owns all lots surrounding the theatre, but for the existence of the latter, they would be entirely worthless. The American Israelite August 1869 For those who returned to Cairo in 1871 for Aida, the opera represented familiar and convenient tropes for those who would invest in imperialism throughout Africa and the East. Autocratic rule, lavish lifestyles, and a society based on master-slave relationships and racial superiority, inferiority, and racial purity. There came this chance that we were being threatened by war. A messenger brought news that the Ethiopians were rising up against our territories. Sir Willard White as the king of Egypt in Verdi's Aida. And we go to arms, go to battle, march your forces. You need a good leader. And the gods had indicated that good old Radamist was a man of great valor and he would lead us to success. And he did, and there was great celebration. To make the peace, the conqueror, and my daughter Amner, a wonderful, high-spirited woman whom I love so much, should be joined together to assure the continuation of a powerful reign in the near future. And so that wasn't based on love, but based on political value, how to make your country stronger, marrying the joining of the right forces. To Ismail Pasha and his guests, the idea of lineage was essential to governance. Aida, the Ethiopian slave, the Ethiopian princess, represented a threat to the idea of bloodline and to their idea of power. As stated by Abraham Lincoln in the previous decade, just because she isn't my slave doesn't mean I want her to be my wife. So the racial dynamics seen in Aida were squarely in keeping with the social agenda of that day. Angela Brown as Aida. So I go to the temple where Amnetis, my rival, is preparing for her wedding to my man. Come on, you show up at the woman's wedding. Well, she hadn't gotten married at that time. I'm, you know, I'm just there because I was asked by Radames to meet him there, okay? Under the cover of night. And you know, don't nothing good happen after midnight. I know that much. But I go and meet him anyway. Verdi is, of course, responding to the Africa that was colonized and that was cut into pieces and so on. But again, tell me what changed about that history? Nothing. Theater and opera director Peter Sellers. We're still in a situation where 18 million people can die of AIDS in Africa and nobody bats an eyelash. You know, hello, 
I mean, we're living in a period right now where we're worried about our economy. And excuse me, has anyone been to the Congo recently? I mean, hello. All those prevailing conditions that Verdi was writing in are alive today in every single way. So I, I just want to emphasize that we're hardly in a world that has shifted. The economic power centers are the same. And the broad outline of who has enough to eat tonight and who does not are the same. And weirdly, a certain population is defined as permanently without enough to eat. And that's too bad, but we're not going to do anything about it. Are you kidding? You know, the colonialism in Verdi's lifetime was positively benign compared to what's going on now. And the absolute systematic economic rape, we have in place, and we're holding in place, a series of unspeakable, unspeakable catastrophes. That's why it's important for us as a people to come together, right? Talk about who we are, what we learn from each other. In this show, we bring the past into the present and the stage into the streets where we all live, love, work together, trying to make it more beautiful for all of us. Next week, we're going to wrap up our interrogation of Verdi's opera, Aida, and we'll return with all of our wonderful guests. Peter Sellers, Angela Brown, Lemmy Pulliam, Rayanne Bryce Davis, Sir Willard White, and Nemet Habachi. This is Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. I'll see you next time. Every Voice with Terrence McKnight was written and produced by Terrence McKnight, David Norville, and Tony Phillips. Our research team includes Ariel Elizabeth Davis, Pranati Diwakar, Ian George, and Jazz Ogist. This episode's sound design and engineering was by Alan Gofinski, and our original music is composed by Brother Jeremy Thomas, featuring Dr. Ashley Jackson on harp and Brother Titos Sampa on percussion and vocals. Our project manager is Natalia Ramirez, and our executive producer is Tony Phillips. The executive producer for WQXR Podcast is Elizabeth Nanamaker, and Ed Yim is the chief content officer at WQXR. This project is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts. You can find more information on the web at arts.gov. Thanks to the Met Archives for invaluable research data. And thanks to all the wonderful guests in this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to rate it. Rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Terrence McKnight. I'll see you next time. You're listening to Every Voice with Terrence McKnight.